0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. I'm going to pray for us. We're continuing our series in work. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the giving of work. Our series is called 90,000 Hours because that is roughly the average time that you will spend Uh, in your work, that is your paid work, over the course of your lifetime, and we want to help you do that well. And so I'm going to pray for us that God would speak this morning. As Jerusha's mentioned, we believe that God speaks by His Word and transforms us by His Spirit. So I hope that you're expecting to meet God in His Word this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, we thank You that You're a God who speaks, that You're not silent. We thank You that Your Word is living and active, like a sword that judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We thank you that your word is like a hammer that smashes rock to pieces. We thank you that your word is like a seed that produces a bountiful crop of righteousness in our lives. Father, we pray this morning as we come to this topic that you would speak to us. We pray that you would convict us and challenge us to help us to live as your people in this world, distinct, holy, set apart, viewing our work through your lens and not the lens of this culture. And Father, we pray that you would transform us by your spirit this morning. We ask that you would do that work. We prayed in Jesus' strong name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know what your uh, first job was or your first paycheck was, uh, but as I mentioned a few weeks ago, my first job was working on a production line in a factory making boxes. Uh, It wasn't the most dignified work, but it was a job nonetheless. And I remember my very first paycheck and what I did with it because I had a deep sense of guilt about what I needed to do with my money. And that is, at the age of about 14 years, I crashed my mum's car into a tree and wrote it off. $20,000 worth of damage. My dad just happened to pay the people that were trying to sue me for it, and I owed him a lot of money. And so my very first paycheck was like, here's my first instalment in what I need to do to pay you back. Uh, And then very soon after that, I decided that I needed to save And buy a car. And as soon as I could, I bought a 1979 little Toyota Corolla. It was amazing, most beautiful little car in the world. Four gears, 900cc engine. In fact, my motorbike has an engine about as big as that now. Uh, But I bought that car because why? Because as an 18 year old, a car equals freedom. In my household, you couldn't drive the family car unless you had the excess in the bank to pay for the insurance on the event that you had an accident and I could never save up enough money to pay for the excess so I just never got to drive the car and and plus you also had to argue with the family about who was going to get the car when and anyway so I bought a car cuz it was freedom I could do what I want when I want go wherever I want and I literally blew every cent I had on a little Corolla now this morning we're going to be talking about what we do with the fruit of our labours, with our income, with our salaries. And for some of you, um, you're in a form of work that doesn't necessarily pay you money. Like you may maybe a stay-at-home mum, which, as we've been trying to emphasise in this series, is a beautiful, dignified form of work. You just don't happen to get paid for, or perhaps you might get some government assistance from your baby bonus or whatever. How good is it in Australia you get a baby bonus? That's so good. Uh, but so most of what I'm speaking about this morning will be relevant if you're in paid work. But everything that I'm going to say is as true for paid work as it is for unpaid work. What I want to talk about this morning is what we do with the fruit of our labours and how we think about that. And I want to help you think about that from a Christian worldview. Because I think for the most part, we think about the fruit of our labours. We think about our income and our salaries from the perspective of our culture. We, we cut eternity out of the picture and we begin to think about them from this imminent frame. Everything is temporal. Uh, you live one life, so YOLO, spend up, livid, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, and I want us to help, help us think Christianly about our work and what we do with the fruit of our labors. For the most part, I think we think about our finances through three lenses. The first lens is the lens of security. That we earn our money in order to provide security for ourselves and for our family. And that's true, we do. But I think sometimes our hearts are so drawn to locate that deep sense of security in how much of a buffer we have in our savings account. And there's a deep sense of security that comes from the fact that we're independent and we can look after ourselves. When for the most part, the people in the first century that the scriptures were written to lived day to day or week to week. But we locate so much of our security in our finances, in our financial health. The second lens I think we view our income from is from the, 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 the lens of status. That in our culture, the more money you earn, the higher you are at the pecking order. The more status that you can purchase. You can choose to live in that expensive suburb and drive that car and dress in a particular way. And all of that brings a certain sense of esteem and status. And so our world, our culture views our income and our finances and the fruit of our labor through that lens of status. And then finally, through the lens of freedom, which I've already touched on. We, we, we view our finances, our income through the lens of the freedom we have to choose to do what we want to do with our lives, travel, purchase, invest, do this, do that. There's this sense of freedom. Now, th- there's, there's a real sense where that's acutely applicable and true, given that most of our world lives in some form of constraint because of poverty or corruption or in a third world country where they actually have no freedom because of the constraints that, that are around them. And so, yes, there is a sense of financial freedom that's good. But I think for the most part, our version of freedom is that we get to do what we want, when we want, where we want, travel the world, experience all of these things without any version of accountability. And so I think for the most part, and there's probably a bunch of other lenses that we can view our, the fruit of our labors through. How do we think Christianly about our work and the fruit of our labor? Now, just a quick couple of caveats before we dive into it. The first is, whenever you talk about money, the room just gets like, you can hear a pin drop, it's like, oh, We talk about money all the time. We try and normalize it. Jesus talks about money a lot. We're actually not after your wallets. If you're not a believer here, you wouldn't identify as a Christian. We're not after your money. Jesus is after your heart. In fact, he's after more than your wallet. He's after your whole life, just so you know, hot tip. Um, But the reason that it gets uncomfortable for us is, if we're honest, our finances tend to have a pretty tight grip on our hearts. As we talk about money, we're actually talking about an idol in many of our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is to help us have a perspective shift when it comes to the fruit of our labours. But let me lay a little bit of a foundation first. As we think about um, the profit of work, we think about uh, all of the wisdom stuff that comes out of the book of Proverbs. You know, like you reap what you sow, or if you work diligently, you'll you'll receive a reward. And the book of Proverbs is full of all these helpful um, guides for work and diligence, and profit, and wealth. And it is a book of principles, not promises, so it's important not to read every proverb as a direct promise for your life. But here is some wisdom that Solomon gives God's people. He says in Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. That's as a general rule, true. If you work hard, there's profit. If you don't work at all, there is no profit. That's a bit of a no-brainer, right? Now, yes, there are moments where people can still work hard and, and not be wealthy or not turn profit. There's uh, moments of corruption or there are perhaps um, difficult circumstances that fall on people. Yes, those things are still true. But as a general guide, if you work hard, you reap a profit from it. You reap a reward. Or again, in Proverbs 14, verse 23. In all toil, there is profit. But mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. Hard work brings profit, diligence brings results. As a principle, that's true. Now, we saw a glimmer of that in Genesis chapter 3 as we unpacked the impact of the fall of humanity's rejection of God on our workplace. We saw that what God had said to Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis, the curse of the fall, is that Adam would work and it would be frustrated work, but it would still bear fruit. There would still be fruit from his, yes, there's thorns and there's thistles and frustration, but his work still brings profit. Our work and our hard work results in an income for us, in, at least in this context. For many people, uh, they lived in a cashless society, different from the way that we live in a cashless society. They traded, they bartered goods. But we live in a context where, in fact, God actually provides us more than what we need. And if you realise this, but your work is the answer to the Lord's Prayer. You know that petition in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. Your work is God's way of answering that prayer. We work, God provides for us. And not only that, we saw a few weeks ago that that work acts as a blessing for the world. That is God's means for blessing the entire world. And in our context, God gives us more than just our daily bread. He gives us more than just tomorrow's provisions. For the most part, 99% 99% of the people in this room could survive a couple of months without needing to work at all. God gives us abundantly more than what we need. And so how do we think about that? What do we do with that? Well, Paul, um, he, he, as he thinks about work, he thinks about work not in the context of just what well, you work to earn to buy or you work to get stuff he has this other paradigm for work and he says this in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. He says, "Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need." You see what he's saying, that the labor, the work there is for the result of being able to share with those in need. So one of the purposes that Paul has for our work is that we 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 earn in order to share. We earn in order to give. So what I want to do this morning is give us a perspective shift. That was harder. Perspective It's not that hard. I want to give us a perspective shift. Now, I think you're familiar with this. If you've traveled overseas and encountered any form of third world poverty, what happens to you is you come home totally woke, right? You're just... Completely woken up to the state of the world, to what poverty actually looks like, to how flipping good it actually is to live in Sydney, and, and you have this immense perspective shift. You begin to see the world in a different way. And what I want to do this morning is give your perspective shift on the fruits of our labours, what we do with our finances, our income, our wealth. And I want to give us four shifts, in fact. The first is a shift from ownership to stewardship. From ownership to stewardship. The second shift is a shift from entitlement to gratitude. Entitlement to gratitude. The third is a shift from coveting to contentment. And the final shift is a shift from getting to generously giving. Four shifts, four perspective shifts for us to think about. So the first is from ownership to stewardship. I think we believe that the things that we own are ours. All of the things that we have belong to us. I've worked hard for it. It's mine. I bought it. I own it. My name is on the title. It's mine. And therefore, if it's ours, we can do what we want with our stuff. No one is master of me. No one tells me what to do. I can do what I want with what I have. But the reality is you are not your own. You've been bought at a price if you're in Christ Jesus. That is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not your own. You don't own anything. Everything that you have is given to you by God. He owns your life. He owns your body. He owns your possessions. He owns everything. In fact, the psalmist says this in Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. All of it belongs to God. He owns us. He owns you. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Me, Christianity, says this in the way that only C.S. Lewis can say it. He says this, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking, or your moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. And if you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to His service, you could not give Him anything that was not, in a sense, His own already. All of it belongs to God. Everything. David, uh, King David, as he's gathering um, resources for the building of the temple from that passage that Jerusha read for us this morning, he gives expression to this as he celebrates what God has done through his people. In 1 Chronicles 29 verse 14, he says this, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given only what comes from your hand. What we give comes through us. It comes from God through us to bless others. And since it's not our own, and since it's a blessing from God, then God entrusts it to us. He says, I'm giving you this to steward faithfully, to be faithful with what I've entrusted to you. That means that everything you have is actually on loan. It's not yours, you don't own it, it's on loan from God for you to steward faithfully, to use it, to bless, to extend his kingdom, to bring shalom to the, to the world. Everything you have is on loan. So my question this morning is, are you stewarding it well? Are, we, are you stewarding what God has entrusted to you well? Now I recognise, if, if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, you're like, this is crazy, they believe that there's someone who's up there in the clouds who owns all their stuff and I recognize that. It sounds crazy but work with me for a second. If, if you believe that there is a God who created everything in this world and it was not stepped back and let this world just run, he is intimately involved in this world and he blesses us and he, he has given you your intellect, he's given you your gifts, he's wired you in a certain way. If, if all of that is true, then everything that you have is a gift from him and on loan to you. The question isn't out here about what we do with our stuff. The question really is, is God real? And if he is, that changes everything. So the first shift is a shift from ownership to stewardship. We don't own it, we steward it. The second shift is a shift from entitlement to gratitude. And this kind of logically flows out of that first point. If God owns everything and he blesses us with the things that we have, then we ought to be thankful for it because it's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God gave it to you as a gift and gratitude ought to follow. But is it not true that we live in a world that is entitled? We believe that we deserve it all. Everything we believe that we deserve it. And for me, one of the most entitled people in the Bible has to be the prophet Jonah. Does everyone remember the story of Jonah? The prophet, God placed a prophetic call on his life to go and take a message to the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh. And Jonah didn't want to go. He ran from God's call. He jumped on a ship to Tarshish, head in the opposite direction. And the ship went to sink. And so the, the sailors threw him overboard. God rescues him, an act of grace, spits him out on the beach. He literally walks off the beach, preaches the gospel to the city of Nineveh and revival breaks out, or it doesn't break out just yet. Jonah climbs a mountain and he goes to sit on the mountain to sulk at the fact that God would use him to be an agent of renewal to the city. And he sulks and he begins to watch and wait to see what happens. And as he's sitting on that mountain, God provides for Jonah this vine. And this vine grows up and it's a miraculous vine. It grows up very quickly and it shades Jonah's head and in the, in the cool of the day, he sits there and he is exceedingly happy at the vine. And then overnight, God appoints a scorching east wind and a worm that devours the plant and the, the vine dies and Jonah wakes up and he is so angry and God says to him, Jonah, why are you angry? Do you be right to be angry? He says, yes, I'm angry enough to die. Over a vine? I mean, Jonah, come on. Like... And the problem is that Jonah hadn't understood the concept of grace. He hadn't understood that that even the very fact that God had called his people Israel to himself was an act of grace. They didn't deserve God's grace any more than Nineveh did. And this vine is this lesson to Jonah of his heart. He's entitled because he believes that God owes him. And entitlement leads to thanklessness and ingratitude. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus tells a story of 10 lepers And they're on the outskirts of this city. And as Jesus is traveling past, these lepers cry out to Jesus, Lord, heal us. And he comes to them and he says to them, go and show yourself to the priest, which is what was required of the law. If someone had been healed of some form of infectious skin skin disease, they had to go to the priest, offer a sacrifice. The priest would kind of check up with the specialist, give you a thumbs up, you're good to go. You can reenter society as a normal person now. And so Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests and off they go. And on the way, this is what happens. Luke 17, verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, so they're walking to the, to the temple and they get healed on the way. One of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, "Were not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Entitlement breeds thanklessness and ingratitude in our life. But we believe that every good and perfect gift comes from above. God gives it and he blesses us with it. It comes from God and our response ought to be gratitude, thankfulness, joy that overflows into how good he has been for us. Now, I think it's, um, it's easy to grumble in Sydney, isn't it? We're, we're good at it, at Aussies at least, we're good at grumbling. It's it's one of our spiritual gifts as, as Aussies to grumble and um, we grumble a lot in Sydney. We grumble at housing prices, we grumble at how long it takes to travel from here to there. We, I mean... I read a report this week that said, we pay more for beer in Sydney than anywhere else in the world. That's a depressing thought. We have the sixth most expensive coffee in the world. And those are the two substances, it seems, that our city runs on. Alcohol and coffee, right? And so there's a lot to grumble about in Sydney. We can grumble all the time until we have a powerful perspective shift. And we begin to see the things that God has given us. And that erupts in thankfulness. I was reading a report this week from the World Bank uh, that, that was released last year that said almost half of the world's population lives on $5.50 a day. Almost half of the world's population, that's around 7 billion people, that is half of it, three and a half billion people, live on $5.50 a day. You can't even catch a train to the city for $5.50. Just that in itself, just the material blessings that God has given us ought to cause our hearts to overflow with thankfulness towards him. The second shift is a shift from entitlement to gratitude. We move away from saying, I'm owed all of this, to can you believe that God would bless me with this? The third shift is a shift from coveting to contentment. And I'll move quickly through this one, from coveting to contentment. If you realize this, but the purpose of advertising is to make you discontent, to make you want more, to make you look at the car that you have and the house that you have and the clothes that you have and think, they're a bit old, they're a bit last season, I think I need an upgrade, I think I need a new fresh model, to make you want more and more and more to continue to purchase, to continue to buy, to continue to consume. That's, That's what advertising does to us. And we are bombarded with that message every day from every angle and every front. Get more. And it makes us discontent with what we have. Now, coveting is, is like an Old Testament word that if you kind of like mangle um, envy and uh, comparison together, you get what coveting looks like, right? It's that process of comparing what you have to what someone else has a little bit higher up the chain than you, and feeling depressed about yourself and desiring that thing. Covening is built on the process of comparison. And when you're looking across at all of the things that other people have and not recognising what has come down, it leads to a deep sense of dissatisfaction in our lives. But contentment is possible. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. I think that's the reference. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. Naked you came, naked you will leave. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, not Money itself is the root of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Contentment is to look at what we have and be satisfied with it. And genuine contentment doesn't mean that you need lots. In fact, some of the most content people I've met are the people who have very little but contentment is possible and so we need to shift from coveting to contentment. The, th- the final shift, so from ownership to stewardship, from entitlement to gratitude, from coveting to contentment, the final shift is from getting to giving, from getting to generous giving. Yeah, I think for the most part we think about our work and the fruit of our labours in terms of what we can get with it. I mean, I don't know if you realise this, but you could go to work tomorrow morning and on your morning tea break, spend your whole day's pay on the iconic and have it all delivered to your house at 5 p.m. And it'll be there before you get home. Right? We live in this time where it's, it's crazy. You can spend your whole paycheck before morning tea. And we often think about the fruit of our labors in terms of what we get out of it. And yes, that's true. We do get out of it. Proverbs has told us that. Genesis has told us that we work to provide for our daily needs. In fact, even with the abundance and the overflow that we have, God commands us to enjoy it. But what do we do we do with the blessing that God has given us? We also ought to work to be generous with what God has given us. And I don't just mean generous in terms of you know, giving to church and donating to charity. I mean, living an abundantly generous life in every area, thinking about your home and hospitality, thinking about your generous disposition towards other people, thinking about how you can bless uh, emotionally, not just materially. We are people who live generous lives. We shift from getting to giving. Paul, uh, to encourage the Corinthian church to be generous He shares with him in 2 Corinthians the story of the Macedonian church who has been abundantly generous in their giving towards this uh, this fundraising campaign that's happening for the church in Jerusalem that's currently in a crisis because of famine and they have no food. And so they're doing this collection amongst the churches and Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells them a story about the Macedonian church. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters... We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of the Lord also to us. And so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love you have kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul is urging this church to act generously. To act generously where you see need, act generously. Look at your brothers and sisters from this church. Look at how they have acted. They've begged for the privilege of giving. Like what kind of language is that? Begging for the privilege of giving. They have had an opportunity and out of joy, They have met the needs of their brothers and sisters, and they haven't given out of the overflow of their abundance. They've given even when they're in need and in poverty, and they've done it freely and joyfully. So Paul says, with this example of the Macedonian church, I want you to excel in this grace of giving. I want you to give a PB. I want you to give your best, give your all, in terms of being generous towards the Jerusalem church. See, we truly believe that what Jesus says is true. It is more blessed to give than receive. That, that's that's got to be the most countercultural statement in our context. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So I think our worldview would say no, no, it's, 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 more, it's more blessed to get. The more you get, the better you are. The more you get, the more blessed you are. But Jesus inverts the message of our world and says, no, it's actually more blessed to give than receive. And we know that because of the way that Jesus lived his life, giving his life for our sakes. It's more blessed to give than receive. And so the question for us is not, what's the bare minimum that I ought to be giving? The question is, how can I live an abundantly generous life? How can I be generous to those around me? Have you ever stopped and paused to ask the question, why is it That God has given us more than we need. The reality is for 99% of this room, you have more than you need. Abundantly more than you need. Why has God given us more than we need? Well, in his book, The Treasure, Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn says this. He says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but my standard of giving. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but my standard of giving. He's a man who's actually lived this out in his family. You see, uh, he was sued by a secular company for some of his actions, and the judge ruled on behalf of the secular company and said, for every dollar you earn over the minimum wage in America, you've, you've got to give it to this organization. And it conflicted with his values, he and his wife. And so they said, fine. We will give away every cent that we earn over the, min, over the minimum wage and we will live on that for the rest of our lives. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. They were forced to do that. They do it joyfully. And they've seen this principle lived out in their lives. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but my standard of giving. Four shifts in the way that we think about the fruit of our labor, our income, our salary, our finances. Our finances a shift from ownership to stewardship, a shift from entitlement to gratitude, a shift from coveting to contentment and a shift from getting to joyfully and generously giving. And all of these shifts rest on the foundational truth that God is a generous God, that He, in fact, is the one who has outgiven every single person because He gave the most precious thing He had. He gave His Son. And it was Jesus who, though He was rich, like he was worshipped on the throne of heaven, enjoying all of heaven's benefits and blessings, yet for our sake became poor, literally poor, born into a poor working-class family, never earned a wage, never owned a home, travelled on the backs of donations and the generosity of others, and then died a criminal's death. In order to, to do what? to make us rich, not, not materially rich, spiritually rich. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor in order to make us rich. If you have your faith in Jesus, the promises are true. You stand to inherit the world. You're a co-heir with Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us we have every spiritual blessing. Jesus has made us rich spiritually, the richest people ever. And it's out of that overflow of God's good, abundant, gracious generosity towards us spiritually and materially that we live radically reshaped lives. Lives that are generous, lives that are content, lives that are faithfully stewarding God's resources, lives that are thankful And so how do we respond? How do you begin to think about the fruit of your labours? Well, what do you need to do today in terms of developing faithful stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to you? What do you need to do in terms of nurturing a thankfulness for the abundance that God has given us? You know, um, recently I've been a bit cranky and some of some of my friends called it out they're like Matt you're frustrated why are you so frustrated and it was true I was I had to repent of that and so one of the little things I've been trying to do at night is just to lie in bed and just just thank God for five or six things that I could think of that day and sometimes it's as simple as a bed to sleep on a pillow and a warm shower just really basic things sometimes it's the the, the house that we live in How are you nurturing thankfulness for God's abundant goodness? How are you fostering a heart of contentment over the current provision that God has given you? And how are you excelling in the grace of giving? How are you living a generous life that overflows out of God's abundant generosity towards you? What does it look like to have an entire perspective shift in the way that we think of the fruit of our labours, Yes, we go to work to provide. Yes, we go to work to put food on the table. Yes, we get to enjoy God's blessings. He also calls us to do it in this way. As we've been going through this series um, on work, we've wanted to commission different demographics of people in the spheres of influence that you have, different, um, different industries of work. And so this morning, we want to do that again. We want to commission not just missionaries and church planters and pastors. We believe that every single one of you is a missionary in your nine to five, in your workplace. And so we want to commission you to that work, to be God's agents of blessing and renewal in this world. And so if you work in any of these industries, uh, in a moment, I want to invite you to stand up so we can pray for you and bless you. So if you work in business, any form of business, if you work in marketing or advertising If you work in any form of uh, management or if you work in hospitality or the services industry, if you work in any of those industries, can invite you guys to stand up now, be brave. We're not gonna do anything to you but pray for you. So business, marketing, advertising, hospitality, services, management, any of you, thank you for being brave to stand up. We wanna commission you into your work. We wanna pray for you that God would send you out full of the Spirit tomorrow in your nine to five. And so, If you're close to one of these people, why don't you stretch your hand out towards them? If you know them and they're comfortable, you reach out and lay your hands on them and we'll pray for these guys and commission them into their workplace this morning to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Father God, I thank you for every person standing up this morning. We thank you that you've uniquely gifted every single one of them. You've called them into their workplace, not just to work, to earn, to get, but to be a blessing to those around them. I pray that you'd help every single one of them to live bold, radically intentional lives that are generous and content, that their colleagues would look at them and marvel at the way that they live their lives, that they would live with deep gospel intentionality that would demand an explanation for the way that they live. Pray that you would fill them with your spirit to be excellent workers at what they do. And Father, for all of us, We pray for this perspective shift on the way that we view the fruit of our labors. That you would help us to be a thankful, content, faithful, generous people. Fill us with your spirit for this, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Invite the rest of you guys to stand up now.